I don't remember you. D. Extinction. Not that we are all on our way to becoming saints, but one of the first results of applying the laws of unnatural selection and non-random mutation is recreating, time and again, one of the great Christian miracles. Resurrection. Darwin recognized the fundamental role of extinction. It's simply the way it is, the way it has been for all time. The natural world thrives on creative and cruel destruction. Nature has so very many ways to kill off whole species completely. It occurs over and over. And once it happens, there's no reasonable scenario under which natural selection and random mutation would ever lead to the revival of an extinct species. The possibilities of recombination, changes in the environment, food, shelter, predators, and changes to all four genomes would likely lead to the emergence of a different species, not a carbon copy of a predecessor. Humans have accelerated the extinction of many a beast. We eliminated and modified whole species because they scared, bothered, amused, enthralled, fed, clothed, or decorated us, or in some other way served our purposes or annoyed us. Over just the past 500 years, human activities led to the extinction of 869 major species, including auks and dodos. But now we may be about to reverse this trend. One of the strangest consequences of being able to read, write, and reprogram life code may be the ability to run evolution in reverse. Not only will we create new life forms, we will recreate old ones as well. Non-random mutations and intelligent design make wholesale resurrection a near certainty. Just ask iconoclast, rebel, map maker, and all-around rabble-rouser Stuart Brand. He was one of the original 60s rebels, one of the merry pranksters, along with Ken Kesey, who was in on the electric Kool-Aid acid test described by Tom Wolfe. He was an early explorer of better living through chemistry. When you meet Brand, he comes across as the most unlikely of radicals. A distinctly mature, very smart, quiet man with a twinkle in his eye. He doesn't boast. Often he just listens. So you may have a nice chat, leave, and have no idea you just interacted with one of the most forward-thinking minds on the planet. He birthed the whole Earth Catalog, one of the precursors and catalysts of the environmental and green movements. But not even his craziest trips could compare to what Brand attempts today. A large-scale reversal of diverse extinctions. Now in his 70s, Brand is a strong advocate of biotech and with his wife, Ryan Phelan, recruited a coalition of the world's top life scientists to launch a de-extinction movement. In his new paradigm of Conservation 2.0, you not only preserve and protect that which you haven't managed to kill off, you also redress past tragedies. This revive and restore strategy births a new field known as resurrection biology, which is full of new rules and options that would surprise and perhaps delight Darwin. Brand's new passion builds on and accelerates a movement that has already produced surprising results. Alberto Fernandez Arias briefly brought back an extinct Spanish breed of ibex, Bucardos, using cryopreserved tissue. Australia's Michael Archer revived an early-stage embryo of the extinct gastric brooding frog. How could these feats be possible with no living specimens? Through the retrieval and copying or cloning of DNA from frozen specimens. Another way is knowing the current and past DNA makeup of the extinct and their descendants, systematically backbreeding and modifying, which is what the Netherlands' Henri Kirkdijk Oten, an activist, farmer, curator, is attempting in his quest to bring back the European Auroch, an animal last seen in 1627. 
Meanwhile, Harvard's George Church edits wholesale the genomes of band-tailed pigeons to reverse-engineer the extinct passenger pigeon, a creature once so common it used to blacken the skies for North American observers for hours, sometimes days. William Powell applies similar techniques to try to bring back the nearly extinct American chestnut tree. Thanks to people like Oliver Ryder, who spent a lifetime creating one of the world's greatest frozen DNA zoos in San Diego, there are samples for more than 1,000 threatened and near-extinct species to play with, revive, and restore. For older extinct creatures, such as woolly mammoths, there is the all-natural frozen zoo of Siberia. What the permafrost preserves is astonishing. In early 2013, a Japanese science expedition discovered an almost perfectly preserved woolly mammoth. Not only was the hair preserved, so was the blood in its veins. Note that this discovery was only possible because we drove mammoths to extinction so very recently. They were alive when Egyptians were building pyramids. While the skeleton ended up in a Japanese science center where visiting children can touch the hair, the blood went to South Korea to a private biolab that hopes to implant an elephant egg with the mammoth's DNA, though most scientists are highly skeptical. As the world warms, the remains of creatures such as steppe lions, woolly rhinos, and giant deer surface from melting ice with growing frequency. When scientists and explorers can get to remains before wolves and carrion feeders, they can preserve samples of ancient DNA. One expedition recently extracted the DNA of a 700,000-year-old stallion known as Thistle Creek from the Yukon permafrost, where its contemporary ancestors roamed beginning about four million years ago. Thistle Creek's progeny evolved into modern-day horses, donkeys, and zebras, which disappeared from the American continent about 7,600 years ago, only to be reintroduced to the Americas once again with the arrival of Columbus. But what about those species so long extinct that there's little chance of finding them in the permafrost? Bringing back a T-Rex remains the stuff of Jurassic Park melodrama, but as our ability to sequence, read, and reassemble DNA from fossil specimens grows, even reviving long-extinct species may become possible. DNA assembly technologies are advancing so quickly that, with infinite patience, scientists are able to reassemble a whole genome, even out of minuscule quantities of severely decomposed fragments of DNA. Think of this like trying to rebuild a fallen brick wall from a pile of bricks that look similar but are non-identical. By stacking bricks that have matching, overlapping features on top of each other, eventually you can scaffold the pile of bricks into the original long wall. The wall of bricks represents the reassembled, end-to-end -end genome sequence of the long-lost specimen. But with DNA, the assembly process is done with a computer. UC Santa Cruz's Beth Shapiro and McMaster University's Hundrick Poinar have taken every fossil and DNA specimen they can get hold of and slowly built up a large database of genomes from long-extinct species. Once one has a reasonable computer-rendered facsimile of the original genetic code of a species long-extinct, one can begin to build a roadmap of how today's descendants of that creature evolved. And then one can map the gradual genetic transitions that occurred across generations. Having a general sense of the basic underlying gene code that led from an ancient extinct species to today's descendants provides a blueprint of what once was. Eventually, this database of ancient DNA codes will provide clues as to what types of surrogates need to be bred to revive creatures that have not walked the earth for hundreds of thousands of years. One might devolve an existing species by understanding what the creature's DNA looks like today 
and what DNA code it evolved from. Remove one gene, add another, slightly modify a third, silence a fourth, until one gets an approximation of the original creature's DNA. Think of this as walking back from the edges of tree branches toward the trunk on an evolutionary tree. For instance, if you know that a snake's ancestors once upon a time had limbs, and you insert or modify a few genes, you could recreate snake-like creatures that walk. Imagine letting one of those loose around Halloween. In a world where we begin to control evolution, the arrow of time can run backward, or in many different directions. We know that birds are descended from dinosaurs, and it's just conceivable that by deleting or modifying certain genes from today's chickens, one might be able to advance quite a long way toward recreating the genetics of a dinosaur. Along this path, we may produce hens with teeth, tails, and scales. And to quote a wonderful Wired magazine cover on de-evolution, what could possibly go wrong? All of which brings us back to human evolution. The same technologies being developed to revive extinct animals might be used to push our own evolution backward so as to revive and restore various extinct hominins. After all, the difference between humans and Neanderthals is a minuscule 0.2% of total human gene code. We have the sequence in hand, so it should eventually be possible to synthesize a Neanderthal genome. And a recent analysis explored the Neanderthal and Denisovan epigenomes as well. And why stop there? As we map out the gene code of various other ancestors, we might be able to bring them back as well and have substantial sections of the human evolutionary tree walking around at the same time. There would have to be specific tweaks to a few genes, like FOXP2. A single-letter DNA base change in this particular gene in humans can lower IQ and lead to the loss of language. While mice and humans share the gene, there are only three amino acid differences between these species and one amino acid difference between humans and chimps. If one were to alter the FOXP2 in a monkey so as to humanize it, the change could modify a variety of brain-related traits that separate humans from apes, and one might conceivably begin to build up part of a missing link in the evolutionary chain between apes and hominins. Or, by extension, one could transfer traits from humans to other species, and vice versa. Diversity has helped our survival. While Tibetans are well adapted to living in a high, cold, oxygen-poor environment, few Han Chinese are. At higher elevations, infant mortality is far higher for the Han, among other things, because their babies are not getting as much oxygen. At these elevations, Han babies die three times more often than Tibetan babies. In 2014, detailed comparisons of genomes from both groups led to some surprising and extraordinary results. Tibetans are now thought to be unique among living humans because they carry a particular variant of the EPAS-1 gene, a variant that likely came from interbreeding with a long-extinct hominin known as Denisovan. This gene variant enhances the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. Using unnatural means to revive and restore is simply running back the evolutionary movie to an earlier, more natural state. But if we revive lost cousins, we would face myriad complex and interesting questions, including what rights and legal responsibilities one would ascribe to and demand from various hominins. Doesn't matter how evolved they are. Where would they live? and under what conditions. And if we beget more evolved hominins, how do we want them to treat us? Though the legal, ethical, and moral obstacles are daunting, we should remember that historically it is normal and natural to have multiple varieties of hominins walking around at the same time.
do we really want to bet the future of all hominins on the gene code of one particular species? Humanity's Really Short Story Before we consider where we are going, let's stop and consider how we got here. About 14 billion years ago, a single minute point of unimaginably concentrated energy fluttered and caused the greatest explosion we can conceive of ever. As plasma spread and began to form enormous clouds of dust, a few clumps of dust reached critical mass and gradually gravity took over. Immense quantities of dust began to compress until atoms began to fuse, which in turn ignited thermonuclear reactions, giving birth to stars. Trillions of new stars formed galaxies in wondrous shapes and sizes. We live in the Milky Way, a relatively ancient galaxy. Some of its stars are almost as old as the universe, more than 13 billion years old. Within our galaxy lie 200 to 400 billion stars. A mere uncertainty level of plus or minus 200 billion stars just within our own galaxy gives you a small sense of how very ignorant we still are about the numbers. Astronomers currently estimate there are 80 billion galaxies containing 30 to 70 sextillion stars. Within the billions of planets and moons in our galaxy lies our sun, a teenager, at a mere 4.57 billion years old. Leftover floating chunks of matter from the Great Explosion formed a few planets, including a tiny planet called Earth, 4.4 billion years ago. That's right. For more than two-thirds of the universe's history, there was no Earth. Relatively soon after Earth was created, it was crawling with life. Then, almost all life went through at least five major cycles of extinction. The Permian-Triassic cycle alone eliminated about 83% of all genera on Earth. Talk about extreme spring cleaning. It was only after the last major extinction, the Cretaceous Tertiary about six million years ago, that mammals, and then humanoids, gradually and tentatively began to spread. Put this all in context. 99.96% of the entire history of the universe took place before the first hominins, never mind the first humans, showed up. Then, after the rise and fall of at least 25 proto-humanoids, we, Homo sapiens, somehow escaped almost certain extinction, survived, and thrived. Within this overall picture, do you really believe that we, the self-named Homo sapiens, are the be-all and end-all of the entirety of evolution? In other words, do you think the entire reason and purpose of the past 14 billion years of the known universe and the sole purpose of 4.5 billion years of Earth's history and the sole purpose of 4 billion years of life's evolution and at least five cycles of extinction was to create the likes of us? Our story, our purpose of being, continues to unravel and evolve. When Darwin was around, the only human-like fossils available for study were a few lonely Neanderthals. Now we know we branched off from chimps and bonobos about six million years ago and eventually evolved into Artipithecus ramidus about 4.4 million years ago. By 2009, we had more than 110 specimens detailing a few aspects of A. ramidus's life and habits. Then, the sexier, less monkey-like but still unibrowed Australopithecus appeared around 3.7 million years ago. He began using tools to butcher and build more than 2.6 million years ago, thereby genetically conditioning subsequent descendants with an innate desire to troll around Home Depot. But despite the burst of recent discoveries of ancestors, potential ancestors, and kissing cousins, we are just beginning to understand fossil genomics 
and DNA-encoded genetic trees well enough to begin to really understand who did what to whom, when, and what that led to. None of the dozens of other ancestral Homo species made it. Homo sapiens itself came within a few thousand individuals of complete extinction. But unlike all other versions of humanoids, we survived. And over time, we began to take some control over what nature could do to us, how it could naturally select us. Bit by bit, we began, for better and for worse, to master more and more of our environment and guide it toward our own purposes. And now, we have changed the nature of our world to such an extent and developed such profound capabilities for recrafting our bodies and environment that we are birthing our successor species. Evolving Hominins One of the greatest evolutionary experts, Ernst Mayer, concludes his 1964 book, What Evolution Is, by arguing, what is the probability that the human species will break up into several species? The answer is clear. None at all. He based this conclusion on two criteria. We occupy every geographical niche on Earth, Arctic through tropics, and there are no truly isolated human populations. Most people believe there's only one human species, and that there has always been only one human species. The first assertion is still likely true today. The second is demonstrably false. At least three of the other species were alive when our ancestors emerged from Africa 50,000 to 80,000 years ago, Denisovans, Hobbits, and Neanderthals. Many of today's Asians share Denisovan ancestry, as do modern Tibetans and Spaniards. One big global family. For better or worse, humans have evolved quite a bit. We know of dozens of prototypes who represent the absolute pinnacles of human speciation, such as Elvis, Michael Jackson, and the Kardashians. That's it? Is it over? Have we really stopped evolving? If having multiple hominins running around at the same time has been the historical norm, then there is, of course, a corollary. It's historically highly unusual and quite rare for there to be a single solitary hominin species on the planet. This is hard to picture, given how dominant we now are, so try a thought experiment. Imagine a single species of bird everywhere. Just woodpeckers everywhere and nothing else. No robins, hummingbirds, finches, cardinals, peacocks, eagles, crows, parrots, toucans, vultures, flamingos, hawks, pigeons, ducks, canaries, geese, owls, sparrows, swans, pelicans, bluebirds, warblers, not even pesky seagulls. That would be weird, no? So why believe it's normal and natural for there to be only one single species of Homo alive today? This counters all of evolutionary history and the fossil record. Not having multiple closely related species tends to make an entire evolutionary branch far more vulnerable to extinction. In fact, that's almost what happened to us less than 100,000 years ago, when it is estimated that at one point, only 2,000 humans were alive in the world. Which brings us back to this troubling question of separate human species. The more we find out, the more similar many hominins seem. Neanderthals used fire, ate a lot of meat, used spears, buried their dead, cared for the sick, made great art. Until just a few years ago, we thought we were really beginning to understand Darwin's evolutionary tree for humans. As far as we were concerned, Neanderthals were a separate but coexisting species with H. sapiens and were not a precursor to humans. Little did we imagine that Neanderthals were truly 
our kissing cousins. Using a molecular clock, we can guesstimate when humans last had sex with Neanderthals, some 50,000 to 60,000 years ago. It was cold and dark, there was a cave, maybe some booze. In 2013, the story got even more complex. A bone found in Spain shocked researchers. First, because it put the existence of early sentient hominins back another 100,000 years, and second, because its DNA showed it was part Neanderthal and part Denisovan, the latter of whom were thought to reside only in Russia and Asia. So you may think your weird cousin is a Neanderthal, and you are partially right. If you have European or Asian ancestors, even if you do not live inside the Washington Beltway, 1-3% to of your genomic DNA is inherited from a Neanderthal who lived 50,000 years ago. Steve took a basic consumer gene test and found that his DNA is 2.9% derived from a Neanderthal. But evolutionary geneticists found that our modern X and Y chromosomes are devoid of actual Neanderthal ancestry. This provides a genetic fig leaf rationale for why we are a different species. Phew. Darwin might be surprised by the revelation about interbreeding, never mind Bishop Wilberforce, Darwin's nemesis in the evolution debate. But he would nonetheless predict that the 1-3% to of today's non-African DNA that came from Neanderthals must have conferred a survival or reproductive benefit. Indeed, Neanderthal DNA had an influence on skin pigmentation, neurons, immunity, vision, brown fat metabolism, and olfaction. DNA mutations can identify historical patterns of human migration. Based on a genetic analysis of his Y-chromosome DNA, Steve discovered that his paternal ancestors lived in China about 20,000 years ago, and from there, they migrated into Siberia, western Russia, and eventually Scandinavia, landing in Finland, where they ultimately begat 60% of today's population. How would you like to have a co-author disguised as a mild-mannered Finn with the dark heart of a Hun Neanderthal? Language experts confirm these genetic migrations, finding the origins of the Finnish language in eastern Russia. And while we are on the topic of ancestry, Someone should tell the nice ladies who are daughters of the American Revolution and descendants of those who came to America on the Mayflower that, so far, the only relatively pure race of Homo sapiens is African. Humans can and do diversify, recombine, speciate. There are significant identifiable differences among us. For example, we can't just randomly donate blood to accident victims. If you transfuse the wrong blood type, you can cause an acute hemolytic reaction in which the immune system attacks the new red blood cells. The result is particularly bad when A-type blood enters a type O person. As new blood cells break apart, the recipient's urine turns red, and before long the kidneys fail, often resulting in death. We're not suggesting that type O people are a different species from type A, and so on. The point is to highlight again how fundamental biological changes can emerge and spread even within one species. A, B, O blood types vary from country to country and region to region. The most prevalent type in Iceland is O positive, 46.7%. Norway, is A negative, 42.5%. India is B positive, 30.9%. Why such extreme differences? And why does anyone have a non-O type if it increases your risk of arterial and venous thromboembolisms? One reason for these relatively recent mutations, 20,000 years ago, may be that they produce thicker blood that reduces the risk of hemorrhages and infections. On the other hand, people with type O blood are also more susceptible to severe cholera, so it's far less common in India and Bangladesh. Some people with type A blood 
may have some protection from ulcers and stomach cancer, likely because they are resilient to H. pylori. In other words, we continuously evolve. Our blood types adapt to genetic accidents, weather, culture, different diseases and environments. We still don't know what might have led to the B type. Blood diversity sometimes intrudes even in the most intimate of bonds. In Europe, far more so than in Asia and Africa, a mother's immune system attacks her baby. This often occurs when a mother has type Rh negative blood and father has Rh positive. This affects about 13% of all European pregnancies. The more pregnancies, the greater the likelihood of a mother's quasi-allergic reaction to the fetus. It's why prospective fathers should not donate blood to their partners during childbearing years. Many kinds of changes begin to occur, and in some cases are physically visible and obvious, long before formal speciation. Consider that Chihuahuas and Great Danes are technically the same species. Speciation can occur as a gradual continuum, or sometimes as a sudden, punctuated break. It all depends on whether geographic, environmental, physical, disease, religious, and or cultural changes are the primary driver. Until eventually you can't, won't, or shouldn't have kids with the other. As we consider human speciation, it's important to also consider gene mutations that give a subgroup in a specific environmental niche a selective advantage, akin to the beaks of Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Islands. By comparing Asians to Africans to Europeans to South Americans to Inuit and so on, scientists are combing human genomes to find specific beneficial mutations, which in some cases are regionally focused. For instance, had you been wandering around Spain around 7,000 years ago looking for tapas, you might have run across a strange chap, one you no longer see in Europe, one with dark African skin and deep blue eyes. If you had found a common language and been able to go out for a meal together, his diet and yours would vary substantially. Fettuccine Alfredo would have been a no-go given that this ancestor could not digest starch or milk because he did not have the appropriately mutated enzymes. Overcoming lactose intolerance is a recent beneficial mutation that swept across Europe with the advent of domesticated goats and cows. Similarly, a mutation of the HERC2 gene for blue eyes arose in the Baltic about 10,000 years ago. Various genes account for fair skin, blonde hair, and straight, thick hair, as well as altered skin function and disease resistance in various Asian populations. Any speculation on future human speciation generates much sound and fury. But it's going on. Not because there's some Dr. No hidden away on a Caribbean island plotting the end of H. sapiens, but because of two overwhelming forces unnatural selection, and the emergence of non-random mutations. We are massively altering our environment, which is altering our four genomes across generations. We are also taking control of our genetic code. In addition, we are creating enhancements for human bodies that some people will eventually decide they cannot live without and that could become integral to our survival or reproduction in the future. We are discovering so much, so quickly, in so many fields. Let us stress, there's not one lab, one experiment, or one technique that leads directly and deliberately to speciation. It's not one technology, government, company, region, or discipline that's driving change in our species. Discovery is widespread and decentralized. An avalanche of modifications, changes both small and large, accumulate and accumulate until we are no longer the same. We are already in a period of extreme disequilibrium. Over the past 10,000 years, human evolution occurred 10 to 100 times faster than at any other time in our species' history.
Part of this is a sheer numbers game. If the average child each carries 100 DNA mutations, how often some rare mutation occurs, whether beneficial or disastrous, depends partly on how many people there are. About 1.2 million years ago, before humans, there were only about 18,500 total hominins alive on the entire planet. They were more endangered than today's gorillas. That implies that our ancestors had a couple of million total mutations to recombine. Today, there are about 7 billion folks on the planet, which would represent potentially 700 billion mutations. Since the human genome is only 3.2 billion bases long, this means that statistically, every G, A, T, and C in the genome has been mutated in someone. And if the mutation is not lethal, someone alive today probably has it. So once we sequence enough people's genomes, we will have a full catalog of all individual mutations. Perhaps one way to envision the new normal in genetics is through a talk that Del Harvey, Twitter's head of trust and safety, did for TED. In January 2014, users tweeted more than 500 million times per day, which means that the one in a million outlier happens 500 times per day. When this is applied to life code, the chances of finding the outliers that might allow one to survive under very strange conditions become far more common. Very few researchers are deliberately trying to build new hominins, but as they search for cures to various diseases, they are finding a lot of variance in the genes that regulate our ability to eat, smell, and reproduce. Each of these discoveries is a genetic raindrop. Raindrops build rivers, lakes, and oceans. New genetic engineering instruments turbocharge rapid evolution. Now, with the right editing tools, say a genome assembler plus CRISPR, one could individually silence any human gene to see which one gene or combination of genes is an evolutionary game-changer. There is the very real possibility, if not near certainty, that as we accumulate and implement knowledge at a breakneck speed, we will evolve the current human species into multiple human species. Why would multiple new homo species be more likely to emerge over time as opposed to one new superhuman all of a sudden? Because people make choices. Some will embrace all change, some will adopt partial change, some will want to allow no change at all. The technologies in question then allow rapid divergence based on personal choice. Recall the ArcFusion dinner questionnaire or the t-shirt that reads, Fine, I evolved, you didn't. As the menu of ways to adapt and alter our bodies expands, as the technology gets cheaper and safer, our great-grandkids will have fun playing bio-Legos with our descendants. But bringing back this small planet to its more traditional state, one in which various versions of hominins live side by side, raises all sorts of hairy questions. We've struggled mightily with the problem of so many humans finding it somehow acceptable and moral to treat those they perceive as being from different races in extraordinarily cruel ways. Those biases and brutalities have persisted even after various analyses showed that individuals of different races may well be much closer to us genetically than we are to some of those within our own supposed race. As with all things in life and in evolution, there will be winners and losers. Economic and cultural divisions within and between countries, nations, tribes, and societies will likely lead to very different ways of adopting and adapting. Some people or cultural groups will opt out for religious or moral reasons. Others may not be able to afford various adaptations. And there will also be groups who prefer to be isolated and left alone. 
geography, religion, education, income, and culture are all factors that may lead to diversity in our evolution and, ultimately, to speciation. Does this seem far-fetched? New environments change species. Everything from plants on Mount Etna changing post-volcanic activity to African fish, Hawaiian cave plant hoppers, snails on Crete, corregonine fishes, and southeast Australian invertebrates bears it out. So to suggest that humans are not also changing, you would have to assert that there has been no change in the human environment over the past millennia, over the past centuries, over the past decades, and therefore no adaptation, evolution, is necessary. Or perhaps we are immune to change in our environment? University College London's Steve Jones argues, things have simply stopped getting better or worse for our species. If you want to know what utopia is like, just look around. This is it. Wow. Now just pass the Prozac and dust off your existentialist texts. This point of view, these acolytes of the conservative past argue that even as we drastically alter our entire environment, our food, climate, predators, epigenomes, microbes, bodies, and brains, nothing changes. Interesting thesis, given that it goes against every shred of evidence in the fossil, DNA, microbial, and environmental record. But for those who observe and believe in rapid change, who understand the Earth is no longer just a Darwinian world, the expected outcome is rapid hominin speciation. Synthetic Life Perhaps there's no better example of how humans are driving rapid non-random mutations than synthetic biology. You generally start with something that exists and then create a new product or creature, one that would not exist but for deliberate human invention. Like many good stories, a key branch of synthetic biology begins in a bar, almost a decade ago. Imagine a Nobel Prize winner, a rogue scientist, a hotshot lawyer, and a venture capitalist sitting in an Italian bar in Alexandria, Virginia. After a few scotches, Hamilton, Ham, Smith, Craig Venter, Dave Kiernan, and Juan begin reminiscing about the last decades and asking, could we ever program cells in the same way as we program computer chips? Somehow, who knows why, as the single malts piled up, the project seemed more and more viable. A computer chip doesn't read music or letters or see pictures, moving or still. All that flows through a computer chip is binary code, current or no current, one or zero, light or no light. But these two digits are incredibly powerful. They can collapse every word written and spoken in every human alphabet, every bit of music in every tonal scale. Photographs and film are stored inside the same two-letter language, making it possible for you to carry all your messages, documents, emails, photos, music, and film in your pocket phone. This language gives a street vendor in Mumbai as much information as the President of the United States had just a couple of decades ago. Want a map, biography, history, article, image? Just tap, tap, tap. The chip doesn't care what you're processing, sending, reading, doing, as long as it can be coded in ones and zeros. We take it for granted now, but it's hard to overstate how much this digital transition changed every aspect of our lives. It's ever harder to take an elevator, open a hotel room, turn on a car, get music, take a picture, communicate with friends and colleagues, research, or do countless other daily tasks without digital code. Most of the wealth and jobs created over the past few decades 
come from this transition into the digital world. Over several decades, scientists and technologists have developed various ways to interface between our world and the digital world. Computer chips have been miniaturized and now contain billions of transistors to seamlessly take phone calls while playing video games and update our calendars and photos. It was not one key discovery, but a layering upon layering of ways to apply and manipulate digital code. This language now accounts for 99% of all the information and data transmitted on the planet. Dare you try maintaining your routine without using a single digital device or input? See how many hours or minutes you last. Since the 1930s, in parallel to the development and deployment of digital code, we have also been learning how the code of all life forms is spelled out. Recall, all life forms are written out in the four letters of DNA. Once you can understand these instructions and create blocks of DNA to your specifications, then you can program DNA to execute life code. The cell then becomes the equivalent of a computer chip, but it uses life code, GATC, instead of digital code. And just like a computer, the cell can theoretically be programmed to make cells that produce a lot of things, including foods, chemicals, and fuels. Nothing's ever as easy as it appears late at night in a bar. It took years, around 40 million bucks, some clever insights, and a large amount of frustration to boot up the first synthetic cell. An extraordinarily creative biologist, Dan Gibson, devised a different way to assemble very large molecules of DNA. This technology is now known as a Gibson assembly and has become standard for the emerging synthetic biology industry. In making the synthetic DNA, biologists Ham Smith, Clyde Hutchison, and their team painstakingly checked and rechecked every one of more than a million letters that is, base pairs, of DNA to figure out why an initial version of the synthetic DNA molecule did not work and boot up the synthetic cell. Turned out that just one single letter of the DNA code was wrong in a critical spot, holding back the project for months. The first human-programmed cell, named Cynthia 1.0, Cynthia spelled S-Y-N-T-H-I-A, was born by replacing the native DNA in a bacterial cell with a synthetic DNA molecule designed, assembled, and inserted in a lab. Kind of a species switcheroo. The new DNA mimicked the gene code of another species and also included the scientists' names, plus some poetry. Through very specific human wishes and design, one species of bacteria became a different species then divided, and propagated. One way to conceive of this transformation is to imagine an engine that could be inserted into that old VW in your barn and would then turn every part of the old car into a new and complete Ferrari. Those in the field of synthetic biology had been expecting Cynthia's arrival for years. As various DNA manipulation techniques and discoveries piled up, it became almost inevitable that humans would design a computer-like chip. Just as in the 1950s, it became obvious that they would soon discover the structure of DNA. As the new cell was being built, the Venter Institute reached out to all of the world's major religions in hopes they could work together to address key spiritual questions and concerns, foster understanding of emerging technologies, and bless the use of life code in a programmable bacterium. On the other end of the spectrum, security agencies were briefed on synthetic cells and required certain safeguards in the making, programming, and deployment of these organisms. There was quite a bit of excitement at the museum in Washington, D.C. on May 20, 2010, the day Cynthia's birth was announced. It was heralded the Immaculate Creation. Not many science stories have both the White House and the Vatican reacting and commenting favorably, almost immediately. 
Her arrival made the cover of every major U.S. newspaper and was featured in about 4,800 other major global publications and news outlets. Perhaps even rarer, the announcement got Nico Enriquez, Juan's teenage son, to wear both shoes and a tie. As the ability to program life expanded, so too did the deployment of the technology. Over the past few years, the company that deployed Cynthia's life programming technology, Synthetic Genomics Incorporated, SGI, developed ever-expanding business partnerships. British Petroleum bet that cells could be programmed to execute complex chemical reactions. Then a little startup in Texas named ExxonMobil decided this 42-person company, SGI, would be a good partner to genetically program algae to make fuels. Food companies began speculating that engineered cells might substitute for millions of acres of agricultural crops as a way to provide proteins and oils. Drug company Novartis formed a joint venture with the goal of producing flu vaccines for the entire world in a week instead of in a year. United Therapeutics used SGI's technology to begin humanizing pig lungs, a project that could eventually help save the 200,000 people who die every year waiting for an organ that never comes. Having programmable cells introduces a very powerful programming language into the library of human knowledge. The consequences, mostly good and occasionally bad, will change history in many ways. A synthetic cell is a game-changer, just as the computer chip was a game-changer. Placing embedded instructions using unnatural genetic codes inside new cells can serve very specific human desires. Biologic drugs that are more specific and stable, genetically engineered organisms that only survive in the presence of a non-naturally existing amino acid. Industrial enzymes that withstand heat high pressures, toxic environments, harsh chemicals, or perhaps the high radiation of outer space. Our grandchildren will someday take the ability to build and evolve life forms for granted, just as our children cannot conceive of a world without the Internet, mobile phones, and texting. Change is inevitable. In 2013, Yale's Farron Isaacs and his team redesigned an element of the three-letter words contained within the ATCG genetic code for an entirely new and unnatural purpose. This went beyond genetically modified organisms, GMOs, and began to produce genetically recoded organisms, GROs. In creating and inserting a new three-letter code, one that begat a functional 21st amino acid, one not naturally used by living cells at all. Isaacs altered a language that is hundreds of millions, or more likely billions, of years old. Until then, the DNA instructions required to make functional proteins, like hormones, receptors, and enzymes, had all used one of 20 amino acids. So, for the first time in perhaps a billion years, the three-letter genetic code was modified to enable a new amino acid building block, a fundamental new building block designed by humans, used to make entirely novel, unnatural proteins with new functions and properties. By analogy, imagine adding an entirely new letter to a written language. You could make new words, new domain names, or imagine adding a new phoneme, unit of sound, to the library of 40 sounds that comprise spoken English. You could make new words, new rhymes, or add a ninth note to the musical scale. You could make new music, possibly making even heavy metal sound good. Having a way to change the repertoire of amino acid building blocks available to make proteins has broad and far-reaching implications. In the near term, Programmable cells could make biofuels, chemicals, IT storage modules, nanomaterials, and novel antibiotics that overcome resistance. We will build a massive biotechonomy 
in the same way that programmable computer chips built our current tech economy, or techonomy. But the key implications of large-scale genome synthesis and editing technologies, as well as changing the core building blocks for life, will be direct and deliberate non-random species engineering and evolution. In a sense, these discoveries revive memories of Lamarck, making evolutionary convergence and divergence feasible within a very few generations. Life could soon get far weirder. We will likely create whole classes of animals and plants that are resistant to viruses and that only grow and reproduce in very specific environments, eventually opening the doors to entirely different branches of life that would not have grown naturally on Earth. Life forms that are human-designed and begin to branch off of new evolutionary trees in interesting ways. Such changes in the genetic code wouldn't readily arise from any natural process in a living cell today, or perhaps in a million years. Especially now that mankind is rewriting the operating manual. Humans and Hubris Does nature win in the end? Fact. Few single species can shape life on Earth. But in spots like Kansas, Argentina, and the Amazon, hyperproductive farms cover dozens of square miles where almost anything that lives or dies is due to human decisions. Increasingly, a few individuals reshape large swaths of this planet, the animals that graze on it, the crops that grow on it, the microbes and viruses that thrive on it. We are pushing harder and harder into more and more realms, establishing more and more control over greater arenas. It is just as important to preserve and protect all natural areas where Darwin and his evolutionary rules reign. As our technologies advance, as there are more of us, and as more of us become technologically enabled, we become an ever more dominant species. But our ability to shape today's planet does not guarantee our long-term survival. Often there are unintended, ignored, and unknown consequences to what we do and choose. To ensure our long-term survival, we may want to be a little less arrogant in how we treat, colonize, guide, manipulate, and shape other species. We should be far more careful about how many of us there are, how far we spread, how much we consume. But even if we were to do everything right, go green, be more conscious of our environment and our effect on it, might it be that nature wins? A brute force, single species, ever more dominant on a single planet path likely leads to a dead end. Our hubris in how much we have accomplished sometimes leads to a conviction that we are already smarter and better than we will ever be. The temptation is to ossify the species, protect it at all costs. But if we limit hominin diversity, if we attempt to monoculture our cows, corn, and people, we become more vulnerable. Time and again, this strategy eventually leads to a disastrous challenge by an emerging pathogen, a calamitous environmental change, or a new predator. The key is to strike a balance, to permit nature and Darwinian evolution to survive and thrive alongside our brave new engineered, shaped, manicured, curated world. Perhaps allowing even half the Earth's surface and half of its oceans and lakes to evolve naturally. If we are careless enough to use our extraordinary powers without regard for what other species need, how they naturally evolve, then likely we too will become just another set of interesting fossils, in which case an enormous ecological niche will open in our absence. New entrants will thrive, 
and perhaps Darwin's rules will reestablish themselves again to guide all life decisions for a few more millennia until another intelligent life form attempts to guide evolution. On the other hand, if we allow continued, smart, balanced, and rapid evolution, then maybe we ourselves will continue to thrive, and not just on Earth. Leaving Earth? The following questions are another good litmus test for how individuals feel about humanity and its future. What would it take for humans to truly leave this planet? Would you advocate doing whatever it takes? In March 2014, the Genetics Department at Harvard Medical School organized a symposium with the grand title, Genetics, Biomedicine, and the Human Experience in Space. Juan opened the event with a slide titled, The Morality of Space Colonization. And then, to provoke just a touch of debate, he put forth nine principles to consider should we begin to contemplate leaving our solar system. 1. It's hard to destroy Earth, but not impossible. We exist, according to philosopher Jim Holt, in a universe that's 100% malevolent, but only 80% effective. Almost all of space is completely inauspicious for life, but there are some pockets where organized life can evolve, until annihilated by equivalent antimatter, fission, black holes, solar ovens, overspin, declining orbits, stellar collisions. 2. Humanity is much easier to destroy. There have been at least five major species extinctions. The long and varied menu of how things can go horribly wrong includes large asteroids, supervolcanoes, nuclear winter, global warming, supernovae, massive solar flares. One of the greatest killers was a minute microbe, methanosarcina, which covered the Earth with methane and killed more than 90% of all creatures during the Permian extinction 252 million years ago. 3. If we don't get off Earth, humanity will go extinct. This is not scaremongering or doomsaying, it's fact. Earth experiences periodic extinctions that wipe out almost all life, erase the board and start over type extinctions. So the math over the millennia is really simple. If we just stay here, we certainly die. The key question is when. Likely it will be far, far before the sun begins to burn out and incinerates the earth in its expanding corona. Likely it will also be before yet another asteroid, supervolcano, or even the galaxy Andromeda collides with our Milky Way. So leaving Earth is really risky, but it's the only way to hedge against complete human extinction. And if you believe in human rights, then it makes sense to try to protect humanity and its successors by minimizing the chances that one catastrophic event takes us all out. It's therefore a moral imperative to diversify our species including colonies outside the solar system. Martin Rees, Britain's astronomer royal, makes the argument most succinctly. Imagine two catastrophic scenarios. In scenario A, 90% of humanity perishes. In scenario B, 100% perishes. Even though there is nominally only a 10% difference, one is immeasurably worse leaving the planet, not in this generation or the next, but in the future, should be a universal goal for humanity. 4. Natural selection does not get you off this planet. Our current bodies are not designed for other environments. We have to redesign ourselves, as it appears that no amount of random mutation and natural selection is likely to prepare us to survive and reproduce in non-Earth environments. 5. Traveling to and living on nearby planets will likely require a deliberate re-engineering of our bodies. 
we are not built for, nor have we evolved to adapt to, other planets or atmospheres. Space travel and colonization will likely require a far greater lifespan and even fundamental changes in H. sapiens. If we truly want to adapt and survive, to have kids in a different gravity, breathe different atmospheres, we need to engineer our bodies, which implies that if humans are to have a long-term future, they have to practice unnatural selection and non-random mutation. As long as consciousness, free will, fully informed consent, and liberty are preserved, everything should eventually be on the table. From engineering radiation-resistant genes into our bodies to cloning and or mirroring our brains. 6. Life can thrive in unlikely places. Many of the technologies required to survive on other planets, as well as some of the needed medical breakthroughs, are just becoming visible, and none of them contradict the basic rules of physics or nature. Life can thrive in the most unlikely of places. There are organisms with millennial lifespans and creatures that thrive in extreme environments, such as boiling battery acid or tar lakes, where they eat oil and breathe metals. It is conceivable that we will find whole zoos living in liquid methane under the ice on a Neptunian moon. 